open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're in a, a series right now as a church called Growing in Christ. Our normal practice is to take a, a book of the Bible, a section of the Bible, and work through it one passage at a time. We're doing something a little bit unusual in this season. We're taking a topic, growing in Christ, and we're asking, how does the Bible call us to grow in Christ in, in various aspects of the Christian life? And this morning, we, we might describe this aspect as the, the comprehensive uh, aspect of the Christian life. We're calling this growing in the Spirit. Growing in the Spirit... We're going to have a particular accent this morning on, on growing in serving by the power of the Spirit, but growing in the Spirit, and we're going to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, and then obviously we won't be able to dig into every single detail. It's a long chapter, but we do want to provide some of the overview, the main points of this chapter to, to press us in this topic of growing in the Spirit. And I, I want us to remember, and I, I remind us of this every Sunday because I think we are prone to forget with all the voices around us that what we're about to read is not just interesting religious literature or some helpful aphorism for life. This is the divine, all-powerful being speaking to us. Christians believe that we sit under the authority of God's Word. We come to it for transformation. We come to it to have our minds and hearts adjusted and changed to line up with His mind and thinking. So let's read it with that expectation, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one... And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. May the Lord bless the preaching, and the obeying of his word. I had a friend a number of years ago who had studied to be a, a musical conductor. Uh, you know who that is. He's the guy at the front of the symphony who stands facing the musicians and waving his little white baton around at the various musical Section. So he turns to the strings and he urges them to be a little louder. And he turns to the brass and he urges them to be a little quieter. He reminds the wind section when they're supposed to come in. And he encourages the percussionist to build the piece up to its climax. He's, he's not just a musical timekeeper or some kind of performer to wave at the musicians, if you've wondered that. That's not what he is. He's, actually, there is incredible knowledge and skill required to be a conductor. He actually has to, to know every part of the piece, not just one part. He has to essentially memorize the entire piece and know ahead of time what he wants each section of the symphony to do even before it happens. It takes great musical skill to be a skilled conductor. And in the musical conductor, I think we get a little bit of a glimpse of how the Holy Spirit operates in the church, but with one very important difference. Imagine that a conductor showed up here this morning and was going to turn us into a symphony. Now, for some of us, that might work out okay, but for most of us, that would be a problem. We just began pointing out, yes, I I would like, Mark, you're going to play the oboe, and Judy, you're going to play the violin, and Tom, you're going to play the clarinet, and we might protest, "I, I can't play those things. Don't worry about it. Here's your seat. Here's your instrument. Sit down. And when this conductor raises his baton, suddenly you find that you can. And out of a group of non musicians, suddenly there is a glorious symphony. That's the important difference. The Holy Spirit doesn't just guide and direct the church in their existing gifting and ability. He actually empowers and enables the church to serve each other to the glory of God. He turns, if we can say this way, non-musicians into musicians. He turns worthless natural lumps of clay into living, breathing worshipers in the worshiping community. He's the best conductor ever. (laughs) 
He could turn this room into a glorious symphony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say that he has. The way we would say this theologically is that God's Spirit empowers every Christian to serve the body of Christ. God's Spirit empowers every Christian to serve the body of Christ. What we mean by growing in the Spirit, in terms of this passage, is growing in our understanding of this role of the Spirit, welcoming His power and guidance in our lives so that we can be what He has called us to be for the advancement of the body of Christ. We want to be receptive and eager, moldable, desiring His power and gifting and direction in our lives, welcoming His calling and strength so that we're not a cacophony a disaster, but we're a harmony built together to serve His purpose. I want to walk through at least the overview of each of the three sections in this chapter. And the first we'll, we'll call discerning His greatest gift. There's three things we need to do to respond to this work of the Spirit and grow in our response to this work of the Spirit in the church. We need to discern His greatest gift We need to celebrate his diverse generosity, and we need to give and receive his gifts in the body of Christ. Let's look at this first section this morning. Discern his greatest gift. Now concerning, Paul says in verse 1, spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Probably Paul is responding to some question or problem that was present in the Corinthian church. They had a lot of problems, and spiritual gifts was one of them. So he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And it is intriguing how Paul begins this lengthy discussion, we'll go all the way into chapter 14, about spiritual gifts and service in the body. He begins by describing what I would call the greatest gift. And he does that because the Corinthians needed some correction. Their tendency was to think, in their case, the gift of tongues was the highest form of spirituality. And we might not necessarily think that of tongues, but we are also prone to assume that certain gifts are more spiritual than others. That certain things are are enviable, something we should long for, desire, that we appreciate more in other people than other gifts. And we can get focused on which ways we would prefer to serve in the church, prefer to be gifted in the church. Well, Paul comes to the Corinthians, and he says, listen, your focus should not be on any of those kind of gifts, first of all. There's a greater gift, a more important mark of spirituality, a test of true Christian spirituality, the true work of the Spirit that supersedes and transcends and is underneath and around and above all of those kinds of gifts, and it is the ability to call Jesus Lord. That is the greatest gift. He gives them what we might call a test. A test. How how do you know if God's Spirit is at work in an individual? They were surrounded by pagan religions, and so they had no question seeing various other kinds of worship services in their life. Probably even somewhat spiritual activities, demonic spiritual activities, had been witnessed by some of these readers. The commentator C.K. Barrett says, Neither Paul nor his readers doubted that there were other spirits capable of inspiring ecstatic speech. So how is one to know? How is one to discern? The Corinthians might say, well, if you can speak in tongues, that's how you know, a, a Christian. Paul says, no, that's not the fundamental test. 
The fundamental test is what does the person believe about Jesus? And he gives them a positive and a negative test. On the negative side, he says a, a, a Christian motivated by the Spirit of God cannot believe that Jesus, the crucified carpenter from Nazareth, is accursed. He cannot believe that. That's precisely what the Jewish nation believed. That's what the Jewish leaders believed. They believed he was cursed by God on the cross. And Paul addresses this in chapter 1. He says that the Jews see the cross as, as, as folly, as a scandal. And so Paul says, well, yes, but a, a true Christian, a, a Christian who's been given the wisdom of the Spirit, which he describes earlier in the book, the wisdom of the Spirit that cannot come naturally, can no longer see Jesus in that cursed frame of mind as something worthless and e eager to be tossed into the, the scrap heap of history. He says, no, no, a Christian has been given a new sight. Now, we, we don't want to think of this in a, in a sort of wooden way. And maybe you've had this thought. That literally, a Christian can't say the words, Jesus is accursed. And if you say that, maybe, maybe I'm not a... No, no. Let's not be rudimentary in our thinking of this. Paul wrote the words, Jesus is accursed. Okay? They read them to the church. It's not the words of it. It's, it's the belief in the heart that all Jesus was was a cursed criminal. That anybody who actually believes that, I don't care what other spiritual gifts, spirituality they have, they are not motivated by the Spirit of God. And conversely, if a person is able to see in a crucified Jewish carpenter the Lord of heaven and earth, the only reason that happens is because the Spirit of God is at work in them. That's the only reason. Now, in terms of growing in the Spirit, I think what this motivates us to consider is we look at our Bibles. What does Paul say? No one can say Jesus is accursed and be motivated by the Spirit of God. And no one, no one can actually say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean for us? It means the greatest miracle, the greatest gift that the Spirit of God gives to a person is the ability to see in Jesus the Lord of heaven and earth. Now look around you for a minute, literally, physically, like right now. Look around you. Do you realize that you are surrounded by people who have experienced this miracle? Part of growing in the Spirit is growing in our treasuring of the miracle of conversion. We can tend to think of conversion, calling Jesus Lord, as a normal, good Texas thing to do. But if it is a true belief in the heart, not just a religious phrase. No, if it is a true belief, a true submission to Jesus, a true understanding of who he is as the crucified and risen Lord of heaven and earth. If that true understanding has gripped a person, that person has experienced the miracle of the Holy Spirit. That means there's a person sitting next to you that has experienced a supernatural transformation of heart. That means your child, however immature, if they have truly seen Jesus and confessed him as Savior and Lord, no matter what difficulties they're currently facing, they are a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That means this person who is annoying and serves in ways that you don't particularly appreciate, they are a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That means this, this Christian over here who is different than you in many ways, has different preferences, has different interests, maybe even has different political leanings, God forbid, that person is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. What, what is Paul trying to do? He's saying, look, stop setting up a hierarchy of spirituality that neglects the greatest miracle of all. If we think of this in a, <laughs> a silly way, we, we might think of the child who says, 
oh, I, I, I traded my five pennies for the hundred dollar bill. I, I like five pennies more because there's more of them. So I, I got the five pennies and, and, and Jimmy got the hundred dollar bill, but I, I got the better of him, Dad, because there's five and he only has one thing. And mine are heavier and shinier. You can throw them. No, 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 this this is the greatest gift. Whether you're talking about yourself or a fellow Christian, we, we have to celebrate the gift of conversion, the ability to call Jesus Lord supersedes every other distinction. Every other difference in the church, every other area of gifting. Now, now be honest with yourself. Are there certain kinds of serving that you elevate above the miracle of conversion functionally in your life? Maybe you grew up in a, a church that was really expressive in worship. And when you see an expressive person, you think, now that is a spiritual Christian. Or, or maybe you really value serving behind the scenes, and you see somebody who serves that way, now that is a spiritual Christian. Or maybe you, you, you are grateful for the gift and boldness of, or of boldness in evangelism. You see somebody sharing the gospel with a stranger, now that is a spiritual Christian. Now, are all of those things marks of the Spirit? Of course they are. Should we celebrate those marks? Of course we should. But if we elevate one of those marks in such a way that it's more important to us than the ability to call Jesus as Lord, we've elevated it too high. What we should be saying is, does that person call Jesus Lord? Now that is a spiritual Christian. Our conversion is the greatest gift of the Spirit. To be growing in the Spirit, we have to be excited about what the Spirit is most excited about. And what He's most excited about is people who used to say Jesus is accursed, worthless, irrelevant, who now say Jesus is glorious, beautiful, a, a, a miracle of grace and mercy. That's the miracle of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is clapping for on Sunday. That's what we should be clapping for as well. If we want to grow in the Spirit, we have to be in line with the Spirit. That means treasuring, discerning his greatest gift. However, he's not only concerned with conversion, though he wants to put that in place, he also wants us to understand and celebrate, point number two, celebrate his diverse generosity. He doesn't stop with conversion, although that would have been enough. He keeps going, he keeps giving more. Celebrate his diverse generosity. Let's look down here at verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, when Paul repeats himself with that kind of balanced phrasing, he is making a very important point. There is diversity in gifting, but the same source. You notice the Trinitarian nature of that formula as well. He's emphasizing that the Spirit and Jesus Christ and God the Father are all at work empowering Christians in diverse ways, but they are unified in that God is the one who empowers every spiritual gift in everyone. So we celebrate His diverse generosity. In the Corinthian church, various gifts were serving to disunify the church. The tongue speakers were boasting over the prophets, and probably both of them were boasting over the gift of helps. 
And Paul says, what are you doing? God has given these gifts to everyone. They bear the divine mark. This is God's wrapping. Why in the world would you ruin this Christmas morning celebration by segmenting yourselves into those who have and those you think have not? God has given them all. Now, they are diverse and delightfully so, and he'll get to why that is of value and the brilliance of God's plan in the next section, but he wants us first to, to focus on this idea. Look, look, if you see a Christian who has a spiritual gift, even if it's different than yours, you should be celebrating the generosity of God. He is the source of every spiritual gift. All spiritual gifts come from God himself and are to be used under his authority. There's also an important truth here in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means there are, there are no Christians who God has left out. No forgotten presence on Christmas morning. God has gifted each Christian. Now, all that this means, when we look down here at the, the list of various gifts, I don't think this is exhaustive. I think he's just making a point. Look, to each is given. There, there's, there's given by the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. That comes from the Spirit. And then he, he hands out the utterance of knowledge into another. He gives the gifts of healing to another, the working of miracles. Boy, wouldn't everybody love to have that one? But apparently not everybody does. To another, he gives the gift of prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, the various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Here it is again. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, the clear implication here for the Corinthians and for us is we have no reason to boast. And we have no reason to segregate ourselves in arrogance. No reason to indulge in self-pity. Rather, we have every reason to celebrate the diverse generosity of God. In His sovereign goodness, He has chosen to display His divine power by empowering each Christian with a supernatural ability to serve others. In other words, this is meant to be a celebration, not a separation. This is meant to be a, a time of profound gratefulness, not a time of profound boasting how can you boast in a present somebody gave you how foolish is the child who says my present is way better than yours but you didn't earn it God didn't give it to you because he thought it would fit your natural abilities he gave it to you probably because he thought this would be the greatest miracle of all God gave you this gift to display His generosity for the church. Not to increase your boasting or your separation from the church. And just as a, a theological aside, in this passage the, the address is to serving within the church. But really the entire New Testament says that every aspect of the Christian life must be lived in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. We actually are incapable of being Christians at all from the start to the finish without the power of God through His Holy Spirit among us. It's very important that we address the naturalism that is very present in our Western thinking. We grow up in it. We live in it. We breathe in it. We're self-made people, except you can't be a self-made Christian. We live in conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. The, 
exploring membership class, which we have to talk about this doctrine to those interested in membership of our church, says it this way. The pervasive New Testament references to the Holy Spirit in the Christian life leads to one startling conclusion. Every single aspect of our lives, from those we typically call mundane to those we might consider miraculous, are to be lived out in conscious dependence on the supernatural, infinite God himself through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. Every Christian is called to live a supernatural, spirit-filled life. The evangelist D.L. Moody says it this way, You might as well try to see without eyes, hear without ears, or breathe without lungs as to try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is not a willpower, effort, man-made religion. It is a supernaturally empowered, devoted, worshiping event. Do we have things to do? Yes, we do. Do we work hard? Yes, we do. But with his energy, which so powerfully works within us. Do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Yes, we do. But it is the power of God that sustains us for everything from having assurance in our adoption to boldness in evangelism to growing in the fruit of the Spirit to putting our sin to death to serving one another with gladness, to having our hope of heaven, all of those things in the New Testament are tied directly to the agency of the Holy Spirit. So, if you want to have no assurance of your adoption, be ineffective in serving, not grow in godliness, and not have hope of heaven, you can try to live the Christian life on your own. Do you want to go through that list again? If you want to have no assurance of your adoption... If you want to have completely ineffective service of others. If you want to have no boldness in evangelism. If you want to have no confidence of your hope of heaven. If you want to not ever defeat sin. You can try to live the Christian life in your own strength. And you will find in the end that you were no Christian at all. This is important for Christians who try to do a, a half and half, half dependence and half I'm going to trust myself. We work hard in dependence on the Spirit. We fight our sin in dependence on the Holy Spirit. We read our Bible asking for the Spirit's illumination. We preach the gospel with trust in the Holy Spirit. We work hard in all of these ways, but we do so asking the Spirit to make our work effective. Paul's talking about servanthood in the church here. We cannot serve the church the way we are meant to serve the church unless we do so in the power of God himself and the Holy Spirit. Listen, God doesn't want a natural church. He wants a supernatural church. He doesn't want natural Christians. He wants a supernatural Christian. He doesn't want nice neighbors. He wants supernatural neighbors. He doesn't want pleasant evangelists. He wants powerful evangelists. He doesn't want interesting people. He wants illuminated people. God doesn't just want natural Christians. He wants Christians who demonstrate the manifestation of his spirit at work in the church. Whether we are setting up or taking meals or speaking a word of encouragement or leading a ministry team or fighting our sin or growing in administration or wisdom, we must be actively, eagerly celebrating the power of the Spirit at work in us and in others. Paul wants to expand. He wants to expand their view of seeing the supernatural in all the ways the Christian serves. In all the ways the Christian serves. 
so that they do serve with joy and power and effectiveness. And he wants this to result in, point number three, the giving and receiving of his gifts in the body of Christ. Give and receive his gifts in the body of Christ. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body in Christ, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, I, I want to just pause for a moment and, and remind us of what I said at the beginning. This is God's word. What does God think a Christian is? A body part. Now pause, don't move on from that too quickly. What does God think a Christian is? If you're a Christian, what does God think you are? A body part. A part of the body. And he doesn't mean a puzzle piece. He means a body part. You are a part of the body. And the metaphor is played out to mean that in the way that physical body parts serve the body and honor the head by serving the body, obeying its commands, and fulfilling the various needs of the body, in that same way, each Christian is called to the body. Now, now this is not a, a human idea. This isn't some church-centered vision of the Christian life. This is just simply biblical exegesis, straight up. You are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. This is one of those moments where we have to let God shape our thinking about the Christian life. We might have all kinds of ideas. Well, I, I kind of think this is fine, and I think this is good, and I, I'm good with this, and I've seen this work. All of that has to come to passages like this and be submitted, and God has to be allowed to tell us, this is how I think, and you must think this way too. Listen, it is possible, we've, we've hit this point again and again, to, to nod our heads and affirm on Sunday and walk away unchanged. We must not do that. How does God define you as a Christian? A body part. It's not the only way he defines you, but he does define you that way. He defines me that way. You are a body part, part of the body. Now, this is true because in verse 13, verse 13, we were not baptized into different spirits or by different saviors. Whatever our social or ethnic or religious background, we now drink of the same spirit. This is this glorious unity that is, is available only truly in the church. Not actually in political parties or political movements or social causes. No, actually, the, the one actually unified body around the world is the church. It's the only place where people truly can be unified from different, different ethnicities and social structures. This is the, the unique message of the gospel that we have in a very broken and divided world, looking for all kinds of ways to create unity that covers most backgrounds or most people. But the church has something that can cover all backgrounds and all people. It is to be baptized by Christ in the Spirit, in his gospel. That makes a slave to be the brother of his own master, 
Even in this difficult and painful first century era where slavery was still legal, even that slave can come in this Sunday morning experience and say, this is my brother. Now, is there anything that we have that comes close to that kind of a need for unity? Any kind of disparity or difficulty that we face that comes close, comes close to the challenges these brothers and sisters faced in bridging ethnic and socioeconomic boundaries. No. So to be the body of Christ is to be unified by Christ through his spirit in such a way that we give and serve to others and receive from others regardless of whether they are different from us in every other category than this. Now, this introduces an important choice to us. Isolation or participation. This overwhelming body metaphor. Isolation or participation is the choice. That's the point here that he's going to expound in future issues. You can be isolated or you can participate. And and we would call these choices disobedience or obedience. Again, this isn't a Redemption Hill Church thing. This is just standard Christian doctrine thing. You can be isolated or you can participate. You can hang limp or seek to cut yourself off from the body or you can be in the body. Isolation or participation is the implication and choice before every Christian. It was the choice before the Corinthians. Look, you can isolate yourself and talk about how great your gift of tongues is in in your room and by yourself, or you can do what God has called you to do and be a part, a grateful part of this body, this diverse and gloriously varied body. The people of God are not a church unto themselves. They are body parts in the body of Christ. Christ has no amputated body parts, But he sometimes has those who hang useless, assuming they can serve Christ without serving within and among his body. But to be growing in the spirit of Christ means that we are joyfully embracing the metaphor that he has given for the Christian life. A body metaphor. Listen, God is serious in his word. He's not suggesting, he's not joking. He's serious. A body metaphor in which he is the head and we are his body meant to work together giving and receiving under his authority and his power. He, he presses a little bit deeper. If you look at verse 15 there, he says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Well, what's he doing? He's, he's pressing at some of the reasons Christians might isolate themselves or not participate the way they should in the body. He imagines a foot that says, well, I, I, I mean, if I was a hand, now then, then I'd be a part of the body, but I'm a foot. The choice here seems to be self-pity, or grateful service. Again, disobedience or obedience. Self-pity or grateful service. The foot in this analogy says, I I mean, hands are where it's at. Feet are feet. I don't like being a foot. Hands are cool. I am not cool. I am a foot. Paul says self-pity, pride or envy, covetousness, something, but not grateful service. It's important to analyze our heart if If elevating or coveting, perhaps, or envying a gift that we don't have keeps us from giving the gift or using the opportunities we do have, what are we being? A bad body part, a foot that just can't wait to be a hand and wishes it was a hand and feels it's useless if it's not a hand, is a terrible foot. Always trying to pick things up. I mean, it's it's worthless. 
Here, come shake feet with me. It's a terrible foot. It's not meant to be a hand, but it envies the hand, and it wants to be a hand. And don't we see that in our own hearts? I want to be public, or I want to be organized, or I, I want to be technical, or I want to be bold, or I, I'd rather be hospitable, or I, I'd rather be anything other than what I am. The choice comes before us. Self-pity, envy, covetousness, or grateful service. I'm in the body. I'm in the body. Praise the Lord, I'm in the body. I, I, what, what part you made me? I'm glad to be in the body. Am I the fifth chair oboist? Great. I can oboe to the glory of God. Self-pity or grateful service. Very important thing to analyze about our hearts. Is there any gift in the church that you are envious of that keeps you from giving in the way God has made you to give? Verse 17 and I realize I'm just giving an overview. This, this passage is obviously worth detailed study. Verse 17 reveals the danger if we assume that the church really only needs one major spiritual gift. See what verse 17 says there? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of, of smell? You imagine a, a person saying, what, what, what the church really needs is just people that are this way. The choice here seems to be craving uniformity or enjoying unified diversity. God didn't want his people to all be the same. God didn't want his people to all be the same or all have one main gift. He didn't want that. And what God doesn't want is the way it is. He wanted unified diversity. God didn't want a bunch of violinists and nobody else. He wanted unified diversity. If we think that the church is really about having one main spiritual gift. Now, this is subtle. Pay attention to your heart. Sometimes this comes out in Christians that say, you know what the church really needs today? And we put a today on it as if that justifies the wrong thinking. What the church really needs today is fill in the blank. Prophets, evangelists, servants, missional people, teacher. I mean, you pick, pick your thing. What the church really needs today is, you know what the church really needs today <laughs> The church really needs the body to be what God has called them to be. Diverse, gifted in various ways. Now, we are not diverse in the truth. You notice we don't have multiple heads. We're not diverse in our acceptance of wrong teaching or thinking. We're baptized in one spirit in Christ. This isn't worldly diversity that says whatever you believe is good for you. No, we are unified in Christ, unified in the authority of the word, but diverse in our practical function and gifts. The world says, let's be diverse in our authority and the same in the way that we serve. The Bible says, no, let's be united in our authority and diverse in the way that we serve. Do we crave uniformity at times, or do we enjoy unified diversity? One more, verse 21. Verse 21 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. This, this pictures the choice between self-confidence or grateful dependence. This is the reverse. This is the hand saying, who needs feet? 
The eye is saying, who needs ears? The eye is what is going on. It's the Spirit. This is the Christian who assumes they don't need a particular gift in the body of Christ. I'm good. Thanks. 1 Corinthians 12 says, no, you're not. If you think you're good without that particular gift, we might even say that particular Christian, you are not good. You are not good. There are some Christians that prefer independence to interdependence. They are glad to give, glad to see, glad to handshake, but they don't want to be seen as needing the other gifts of the body. So they're the one who's bold in evangelism, but they don't really see the need for biblical counseling and growth and maturity. Or they love growing in maturity. They don't see the need for all these crazy zany evangelists that keep hopping around, talking about the lost all the time. There's the person who loves administration. And why, why do we need people who have gift of mercy? It is so unadministrative to have a gift of mercy. This is the person who says, I, I, I know what the church needs, and I don't need what you have. It's just a, a further way that Christians isolate themselves from the needs that they have that are meant to be filled by the body. Now, listen, be honest with yourselves. Which way do you tend? Are, are you the foot that says, I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not a hand, I, I have nothing to offer? Or are you the hand that says, Who needs feet? I've met the foot. It's just not as cool. Which one are you? Let Christians come to your mind right now. You know, part of what being a foot means is you're not very good at being a hand. Sometimes the hands are frustrated that feet are not hands. And that's why they don't like hanging out with them. Why are you so bad at picking things up? Ear, why are you so bad at seeing things? Listen, if our tendency is to diminish or say, we don't need certain gifts, we need to align our thinking up with God. Receiving certain gifts means being around people who don't have other gifts. That's the real test. Can I receive this gift while also being around their weakness? Otherwise, what we're saying is, can't you just be a whole body to yourself? But that would be arguing with God. No, and you can't either. And trust me. You're as annoying to somebody else as they are to you. Isn't it good to come to God's word and let him analyze our heart, realign us, show us, where's my thinking mm, a little more cultural, a little more me than it is Bible? How can I change, Lord? Who, who is that person that I've decided, I'm not sure I really need them. I don't need their words of encouragement. I don't need their counsel. I don't need their particular gifting in my life. Where have we been reluctant to serve because we're envious of others? Where have we isolated ourselves completely from the body, assuming we can be a body unto ourselves? Where have we done these things 
Listen, Paul says something profound here in verse 27. I'm going to conclude with this now. You are the body of Christ. This is intriguing. He doesn't say you are a part of the body of Christ. Very interesting. He doesn't just say, Corinthians, you are a part of the body of Christ. Now, I don't think in this moment Paul is excommunicating Philippi and the churches of Galatia and the church in Jerusalem. He's not suddenly saying, you're it. No, no, he's saying something a little more profound than that. He's saying that this church, though only one part of the ultimate universal body of Christ in all places and all times, is in itself an outcropping, a full expression of the body of Christ. So that each church should function as a body, as a, a living body with various parts, even though in the ultimate sense they are only one of many Places where the church of God truly exists around the world. So no, it's, it's not okay for the Corinthian church to say, look, we're just going to be the tongue of the wider body of Christ. That's why he's addressing them. He's saying, no, you, you don't get to be that. You have to be in yourself a fully orbed body of Christ for the glory of God. And the same is true for Redemption Hill. You are the body of Christ. Individually members of it. Not everyone has every gift. That's the point of all these questions. The answer to them is no, not everyone has every gift. But we are to earnestly desire the higher gifts. And in context, and leading into 1 Corinthians 13, all about love, I think in Paul's mind, the higher gifts are those things that are evidently before us most edifying to God's people. Wherever we can strive after those areas of service, that would more build up and edify God's people, we are eager to do that. We're not interested in doing things just because we like them. We're asking, what would build up God's people? What would edify the church? What would demonstrate love? Now, brothers and sisters, do you want to grow in the Spirit of God? Be careful in answering that question. Do you want to grow in the Spirit of God? It means discerning and celebrating conversion above every other spiritual gift. It means believing that God has actually empowered diverse service in the body of Christ. Service we should celebrate and be grateful for and enjoy and point out in others. It means we should conform ourselves to this aspect of our identity body part under the head body part in the body of Christ neither called to isolate myself nor exaggerate my importance called to welcome others and to receive from them even as I give to them to build up the body in the unique way that God has called me the unique season the unique gift the unique opportunity to joyfully be what God has called me to be in the power of the spirit for the glory of God for the advancement of the gospel now brothers and sisters We cannot be a church merely naturally, and we can never be a church with isolated or amputated members. We must be a church that is filled by the power of the Spirit, fulfilling God's vision for His church to be the body of Christ in this world. So if you are faithfully and eagerly serving in the power of the Spirit, do so more and more. If you're tempted to denigrate your gifts and to separate yourself out of envy or self-pity, stop doing that because you are cutting us off from the function you are meant to play. And we need you 
We need you. We need the unique package of gifts that you bring. If you're tempted to exalt your particular preferred gift above others, stop doing that and celebrate and enjoy the diverse gifts that God has placed in his body. Look, we want to grow in the Spirit. And in this area of growing in the Spirit's powering work of powering service to the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, thank you for the many, many ways that you do this now. And let's keep growing. We've made it a mantra in this series. Let's not give in to compromise and apathy and plateau. Let's not look back at the glory days of supernatural service back when we were first saved. Let's be asking, how can I now be empowered by the Spirit for joyful, eager service? How can I now enjoy the gifts of the Spirit in others and receive from them to the glory of God? How can I do this now? Let's not give in to passivity or complacency or plateau Christianity, natural living. Let's grow in the power of the Spirit for the building up of His church until He returns. Let's be the symphony that God intends us to be. Magnificent, glorious, diverse, unified, powered by the Spirit for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the many, many gifts that you have showered on this church through its members. Thank you for those, Lord, who have a, a remarkable gift of helping others in practical ways, Lord, that has been displayed over this last year. Lord, just the gift of joyful and skillful practical service. Lord, I thank you for those who have a gift of speaking and have given words to encouragement. Lord, Lord those who have a gift of teaching, those who have a gift of leadership, those who have a, Lord, a, a, a gift of hospitality and have put that on display. Lord, thank you for these many gifts. Lord, empower them more and more. Lord, bring us more gifts. Lord, cause there to be those who do not know you, who come to know you, and then bring their gifts into the symphony of this church. Lord, cause us to be evidently supernatural in the way that we serve one another. And may it be for your glory, Lord. These are your gifts. And so we acknowledge and celebrate your generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.